0: Well, hi, everybody. It's Kim Winter, Logistics Executive Group. Welcome to our latest session with uh, supply chain leaders and business leaders around the world. Um, before we start and introduce our guest today, uh, I'd like to introduce my co-host, uh, Daryl Judd in Dubai. Daryl, as many of you will have seen, is our Chief Operating Officer of Logistics Executive Group on a global basis and also the MD for our Corporate Advisory and Mergers and Acquisitions business. Daryl, welcome.
1: Kim, thank you very much. Pleasure to join you this afternoon.
0: Great, thanks. And uh, without further ado, all the way from Russia with Love, we have our two guests who, uh, well, I'll give you a bit of a background on them in a minute, but uh, Andre Lukin,
2: welcome. Thanks a lot, Daryl. Very pleased to be here. And, and Andre, you're in Moscow? Yes, I am in Moscow at the moment, Kim. Yep.
0: Yeah, good stuff. And uh, Alex Borisov. Alex, I believe you're also in Moscow.
3: Yes, I am, and thank you for having me today.
0: Hey, welcome, and and thanks very much for joining us, guys. Uh, We can assume that you're somewhere around zero about this point in time?
2: Approximately, yeah, but uh, I I (laughs) guess that the springtime is kicking in slowly but gradually, so it's improving.
0: (laughs) Nice to hear, nice to hear. So look, fantastic to have you join us today and um, you're somewhat closer to the uh, time zone some of the uh, guests that we have from around the world, so so welcome again and we really look forward to having a a lively discussion with you today and I've got Daryl along as a a specialist in some of the areas that uh, I know you guys have been operating and in fact as a disclaimer, um, Daryl, I think you ran into the guys in, in Oman some time ago.
1: Yes, Craig. Yeah, we had the pleasure of working together on some projects down in Oman and looking particularly at you know e-commerce and uh, postal hybrid products, etc. And it was a uh, really fascinating to get a good insight into what's really happening in that e-commerce world, and more importantly, what's happening behind the iron curtain there in, in Russia. And just excited by the growth, so it's fantastic. And looking forward to uh, to chatting further on that, guys. Awesome.
0: Well, thanks, Daryl. So, Andre and Alex, you two are really quite interesting characters in terms of your international experience. You've both worked in many different countries across the supply chain. And interestingly, uh, hopefully we hear a bit today about how you work together as well as a, a one-two team in various countries. So quite unique. And uh, we certainly, Daryl myself, and I'm sure our audience will be very interested to hear some of your inputs and some of the reflections of, uh, about where you've been working and, and what you've been doing. So um, without further ado, what we'd like to do is, as we do with all of our guests, is hear a little bit about your upbringing, right from the very earliest days as kids, where you were brought up, what sort of an environment, and uh, how you got to the early stages of your career. And then I'm gonna throw it to Daryl to talk a little bit more about the career in recent times until now. So um, Andre, maybe we can start with you. Where did it all start?
2: Well, listen. It all started in the Soviet Union, actually. <laughs> so uh, I think I'm one of the last generations that have, um, you know, been born in the Soviet Union, been born in Moscow, and uh, spent pretty much my, my entire childhood uh, in, here up until 1992, where when my whole family moved to a different country that was Pakistan, where my uh, father was engaged on a construction project that had lasted for about six years. So the entire family had moved, and that was my first exposure to you know international experience uh, because I kind of lived in Pakistan, but I went. Uh, I've attended the uh, American school there, so there were a lot of Americans. There were a lot of Koreans, Chinese people. So it was a very interesting international experience. And uh, after six years newer there, we came back um, here to Moscow, and um, I've I continued my, my my schooling years. Uh, and then um, um, I got a bit excessive in terms of my further education, because I think I, I, I have three, uh, th- three degrees, two bachelor degrees, one master's degree, all economics management related. And uh, after that, in 2007, basically started my career. It was not logistics related at that time, because I've worked uh, for the Russian uh, nuclear authority uh, called Rosatom. And... Um, uh, yeah, that was that was an interesting experience to work for a, uh, such a large state corporation. Started off as a deputy project manager there, and then progressed into one of the Russian private oligarch groups, uh, working for a media branch there. Um, and I was working in the strategy department there, so I considered those years in that company in particular being very beneficial in terms of building various consulting skills, framing skills, uh, analyzing various problem solutions, uh, comparing various things, which was very, very helpful in my further career, which had started in 2013 when I've entered the uh, logistics world and uh, I've joined one of the Russia's B2C Express last mile uh, companies, which was called SVSR Express. And uh, there was an ambitious target back then to develop the cross-border business for the company because that was exactly the time, 2012, uh, 2013, when the cross-border logistics had really started picking up in Russia. So a couple of very, very exciting years ahead with that project, uh, doing mostly support jobs, uh, operational jobs, a bit of a business development as well, analytics, and, Uh, We we built a pretty, pretty decent business, so all the big names that have been entering the Russian market, we were practically the first ones to be working with them. And uh, Some years later, after that, um, SPSR Express was acquired by um, the famous Geopost group, which is a part of the La Poste in France, and uh, there was a merger between the DPT brand in Russia and SPSR brand in Russia. And uh, when this merger was complete, this acquisition was complete, um, I was uh, appointed as the director for international business development with one of the key tasks there to actually merge the two businesses together, which we have done with uh, quite a large team there. It was about 15 people um, that I I was managing at the time. And uh, after this project was complete, I have received a very interesting offer from a region about which I haven't heard a lot before (laughs) and I have accepted that with uh, a lot of excitement and never regretted that. Uh, Spent some wonderful uh, couple years uh, in in the Middle East uh, supporting various uh, logistics projects uh, in in the area and uh, trying to apply my expertise and knowledge to build something tangible here. Awesome. So I know, I know that.
0: Sorry, yeah, and no, I know Daryl want to drill down on that journey from that point onwards shortly. But uh, so before we uh, we move on, so Alex, uh, upbringing, background, where did it all start for you? And uh, tell us about your early journey.
3: Well, the origin is the same. Born in Soviet Union, as my passport still states. Um, didn't have such an eventful childhood. I spent all my childhood years in in Russia. Uh, basically changing a few schools and then entering the Academy of National Economy, which was one of the best business and economics institutions um, in, in, in Russia. I also had a, an urge for education. So I finished the same university I graduated from it three times with three different diplomas. Uh, I have a, a specialist degree in management. Specialist is somewhere between a bachelor and a master. You uh, spent five years uh, education on that. Then I finished another master's degree uh, in uh, project management. And then I also hold a translator from English diploma from the same institution. Because uh, since the very childhood, basically, languages were, were my affinity. I, I had a, I've had a very good mm, connection with languages. My first language was, believe it or not, German. And, and, and English, I, I picked only after that. Now I'm uh, enhancing my arsenal up to up to seven languages that I'm able to speak fluently, so that it really helps me communicate with with the different world and and you know really connect with other people when I talk in the same language to them. I consider this a definite advantage. Uh, uh, but actually, and my very first job—it's not listed in any track record that I actually have mentioned—it was when I still was a student in my third year, and my very first job was uh, I worked as a part aboard a cruise ship. Which was a river Russian river cruise specifically dedicated to, to foreigners that wanted to really, you know, come and look at, at Russia, and how has it changed since the Soviet Union times and, and what the beauties there are of the Russian rivers and the Russian cities? And all I spent three months there working just aboard a ship as an so-called administrator, but I did a lot of performance a lot of different duties. This is how I got my firsthand exposure with various people and businessmen from America, from Brazil, Europe, China, and other and other places. Um after that, my track record, after having graduated, my track record led me to be an economic analyst for two and a half years for a certain uh, trade house. So uh, really working on some budgeting and, and formatting and installing those budgets, which really uh, helped me grasp a good understanding of uh, how the economics of a firm works, how the business models and, and financial models work. And after that, basically my international track record and exposure started because I joined... A Swiss branch, um, a, a Moscow branch of a Swiss consulting firm that specialized in advising German speaking uh, regions, basically Austria, Germany and, and Switzerland, how best to enter Russian market. And I spent three months in Zurich after that as my first like, posting um, to, to to do that and help them uh, really uh, adapt, adapt their products or services to the Russian market. Uh, and after that... Uh, having finished this, this consulting part, I actually also joined the SPSR Express, the same company that um, helped me develop more into, into the logistics and e-commerce sphere. I joined it slightly before Andre and in, in late 2012, and this is ever since we have been working together as you can highlight it in the beginning. Um, my task was mostly on the front end there. Uh, it was the business development, it was the sales from the get-go, and initially, basically, it was only like four people, Andre, right? From the very start, you, me, and two of our directors that were really developing on this particular unit from scratch. And it was like from zero revenues, we we, uh, we were able to elevate it to the 30% of the entire revenue of the company by the end of my uh, career with SPSR uh, over basically five years time. Um, we, we managed to do that. And as, as one, uh, as our directors were leaving for, for Pastors New... Uh, for for better uh, offers that they got, I basically inherited the entire unit and we were uh, the leading directors of the entire international unit uh, for SPSR together with Andre. Uh, then this entire eventful merger happened also with DPD Group. And um, at that time, I, I, I also believe that maybe uh, my job was there complete. I, I really brought a lot of money for for the owners and and uh, because also DPD Group mentioned that one of the um, One of the key factors that helped them acquire SPSR Express was also the successes we enjoyed in the international market. And we were working with all the major brands, and our name was really a brand name in China and Europe by the time. So I thought it was time for me to also look for new challenges. And this challenge also happened to be in Oman, uh, a bit unexpectedly for me. Uh, Out of the blue, received the offer to work in the Middle East, and uh, same here. Never regretted it since, and was very happy when also Andre joined. Uh, the same effort, the same team. Some months later, so that we could continue our um, journey of creating value together.
0: Awesome! You guys have been busy. Absolutely, <laughs> yeah. yeah. <laughs> Genuine, <isn't it>? <laughs> <laughs> sort of
1: nuclear to Pakistan and to and other things yeah. It's a fascinating
0: story, both of you guys. Yeah. Over to you, Daryl. Take it away. Uh, really it's, nice.
1: just, it's really interesting just listening listening to the guys and and you know we, we often we often sort of forget you know, the geographic size of Russia. And, I, you know, Kim, they talked about DPD and Geopost. I mean, that e-commerce market has really started to shift in Russia. And I think for a lot of us that aren't exposed to that every day, we don't see it. But but e-commerce, you know, particularly cross-border, really is accelerating in Russia. As part, You know, what's happened since COVID? Have we seen an uptake like the rest of the world? Is it going to continue to mature the way it has?
3: Well, um, actually, so yeah, Alex? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, actually, yeah, uh, yeah. Well, actually, with COVID, we're we're uh, looking at some very interesting tendencies in the Russian e-commerce market, and um, we can talk about it first. Yes. Yeah? So, uh, according to the data of a National Association of Online Trade, the one that we have in Russia, the entire e-commerce market, both cross-border and domestic, is forty-three billion dollars in uh, two thousand twenty. Yeah, and it grew uh, by fifty-eight percent, and of course. A huge part of the growth was, of course, influenced by COVID, especially by major food retailers entering the market, because some of the main grocers chains They grew 200%, 350%, uh, basically a, a, a lot. And But a very interesting thing um, is, actually, that the international segment, the cross-border segment, was only $6 billion last year and considered it to be 14% of the overall e-commerce market. And it used to be 30% before that. So now we, we can really see why it happened because of the disruptions in logistics due to COVID. Because the borders were closed, because the lead time was uh, prolonged, and because of various cancellations. Yes, there was an uh, uptake in e-commerce. People wanted to shop, especially during the lockdown times. But also at the same time, in the, in the beginning of uh, 2020 and the first half of it, the logistics didn't perform as, as it was. So we now see that the cross-border um, portion for 2020 diminished. But we believe it also happened only because of COVID. But uh, in the second half of the year, the logistics industry really did its best, enhanced the supply chain, enhanced the lead times. And we believe that this uh, this is going to be uh, on a recu- recuperating streak uh, following from from now on. But these are the latest figures for for the e-commerce market. It's really
1: that's really interesting. One of the things that I know we experienced here in the Middle East, and I'm sure it's reflected elsewhere in the world where we have a, a mix of a you know developed and, and a, you know, developing economies, is that you know, a lot of the retailers were sort of scrambling to put omni-channel e-commerce solutions in place. It had been an agenda item for a long period of time, but they were still working through that. And of course, then COVID hit and as one major group said to me the other day, they you know they learned you know, six years catch up in six days when they had to go through the the execution and put in place. Was that a similar experience for a lot of the the homegrown retailers and, and merchants in in Russia that they they didn't necessarily have the advancement in, in their e channels that and COVID sort of forced that? Is that
2: would that be a fair submission? Yeah, maybe I can pick up from that one. Uh, yes, the, abs- the answer is absolutely yes. Uh, I have been uh, now. It's you know kind of March, so there are a lot of various conferences, online conferences, kind of describing and uh, meditating on 2020. And uh, one of the uh, one of the bottom lines is that yes, the old classic uh, retailer uh, models are shifting towards online because they just don't have any other options because the stores were closing. Um, a lot of other things, uh, lockdowns with COVID have happened, so yes, they have had no other choice but to move online. Plus, the online uh, segment in Russia is um, quite actually ready to accommodate uh, this, this this volume and to serve the wider public. So it's a very uh, it's a very hot topic nowadays in Russia. Uh, I bet it is. Uh,
1: Andre, Andre and Alex, is that meant that the infrastructure that supports that you know, last mile connectivity, digitization? dark stores all of that's also had to be matured as well are we seeing more investment in those areas as a result of that that demand right?
2: Alex you want to pick up on that one?
1: I mean yeah you got SF Express, Alibaba have come in I think there's a number of others that have moved into the region right?
3: Yes, there, we see those tendencies, of course. Um, the the logistics infrastructure in Russia, the way that you look at it, of course, you need to remember that it has had some certain heritage, and I'm sure Andre will be able to to you know shed some light on it, how it actually developed. The state mm-hmm. we're currently in, but uh, when you look at this thing, there still is a huge opportunity because the major. Online retailers, they estimate there is a gap, for example, in fulfillment per housing of 1 million square meters, and a lot of new players are coming in and they're taking up this particular space. They see the opportunity for, for investments coming in. For example, uh, we can we can highlight that the major Russian logistics provider, the designated operator, Russian Post, they have plans of investing um, I think $4 billion within the next seven years into infrastructure, be it uh, uh, sorting centers, the um, be, because they try to decentralize everything. Everything is concentrated around Moscow currently, and Russian Post is trying to build up various facilities in Siberia, in forest to accommodate the traffic. We also we also see cases where um, large giants like Alibaba are coming are coming into into Russia with with their with their Cainiao provider, which is basically the logistics arm of Alibaba. Uh, they did it. They did it differently. Uh, they spent a lot long time structuring the deal and actually entering it uh, in partnership with Mailru Group which is the one of the largest internet groups in Russia but the way they do that they concentrate mostly on online retail because Sanyao basically integrates existing providers onto their network they do not really really build anything from scratch but now it's one of the most important logistics providers because they have integrated uh, customs clearance last mile and first mile and basically they are an alternative fully catering to the needs of, of uh buyers from AliExpress uh platform. Um yeah so that's that's how we that's how we see it developed in in the past years.
2: Yeah m- maybe Alex I would just add in a little bit because to understand how logistics works in Russia and why it works in a certain way, you have to understand a little bit of of the background. Yeah. So yeah. there's a there's an element of Soviet heritage in how logistics is developing in Russia because Previously, in those times, 50, 60 years ago, the large industrial groups in Russia, they uh, had the, they have adopted the model of owning all the assets that are associated with their business. So, I'm not just talking about a production plant and a logistics branch, which is obvious, but uh, everything ranging from a kindergarten for the employees' kids to hotels in, in Siberia, Crimea, or uh, other uh, areas where their employees, in particular, will be spending their summer time so this had its own transition from the, the, the past in, into the present and uh, actually this explains why the level of logistics outsourcing in russia is substantially lower than in the rest of the world so in russia that rate uh, the, this uh, this percentage is somewhere around 20% of outsourced logistics operation while in the rest of the world it's somewhere between 35 and 50 yeah so that actually explains you know the room for growth that explains what alex has been saying about Russia pose that they're developing, you know, new, new, new areas and um, uh, new, new infrastructure. And two other things about Russia logistics is that uh, you have to understand that, um, I mean, there's a lot of space in Russia. We obviously. Yeah, it's a, a big continent <laughs> to get across, <laughs> it's right? It's a big country. Yeah. <laughs> so to get to get yourself from point A to B might be a serious challenge. So this requires a lot of investment into the road infrastructure. Yeah plus the climate here is obviously it's not uh, it's not the most welcoming yeah for that and uh, this also explains the population density because the most populated areas of russia are the central and and the south so all the logistics uh, capacities are mostly centralized there and uh, another aspect of logistics is also the air infrastructure because most of the uh, air holes they are rooted through moscow So sometimes if you want to go from you know A to B, which is relatively not far away from one another, you have to actually make a a U-turn through Moscow because just that's how the line works. And that's why you mentioned Daryl uh, e-commerce in particular, which is an interesting one, because the logistics for e-commerce it exists slightly outside of this heritage. And that's Mm -hmm. that explains the this is one of the reasons why it's growing so dynamically.
3: Yeah, but there is also an interesting bit about logistics for e-commerce is that when this e-commerce boomed, I think in the early 2010s, right? The logistics companies, they were not ready to accommodate the volume. volunteer. They weren't ready to have it delivered at the very speed and quality that those uh, marketplaces and online retailers demanded it. This is why what we see now that a lot, I think all major uh, marketplaces have their own in-house logistics that they use only to deliver their own goods. We do have like three or four major re- retailers in Russia, major marketplaces in Russia, and all of their logistics is basically in-sourced. So mm-hmm. they, they did that because at that time the logistics companies were not developed enough to do that. Now it's all changed, but still this heritage still remains and still a lot of volume is being processed by those in-house marketplace logistics uh, courier companies.
1: So, if if I'm listening to you, it's the the choice to insource at the marketplace level is driven by the maturity level of the infrastructure needed. And the low rate of outsourcing has led to concentrated networks of owner occupied networks, which are hard to obviously outsource and buy capacity on. Um, But I guess that presents an interesting opportunity because if you look at the size of of, Russia and the CIS and just the strategic corridors, that sit there, um, to your point about fulfilment centres and hubbing inventory, the, 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 that demand for additional property will grow as more and more organisations either want into the market and need a connected network, or alternatively um, look to push out into new markets in, in within the, the same region, um, but now need that infrastructure to do so, because holding all the inventory in one location is obviously very costly, but more importantly, the consumer's demand is, I want it, you know, I want it now, right? And, exactly. And I'm not prepared to wait that sort of three, four days, and uh, which is one you know, of the challenges in a big country like Russia where you've got you know, tyranny of distance and all those sort of elements come into it, right? So, I mean, that's got to create an opportunity for the international players, surely.
3: Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. There still, there's mm-hmm. still are a lot of gaps that the international players can close. Uh, actually, a lot of, uh, you said at the very beginning that um Russia has been growing at a very steady rate in terms of the GDP, and yeah. a lot of this is, is this growth uh pre-COVID was fueled by foreign direct investments, and this is still what can give uh, additional momentum to the logistics industry as well, because there is a lot of opportunity and a lot of gaps to fill. Uh, plus, Russia now on the governmental level is piloting some of the things that are, you know, uh, very common uh, elsewhere. For example, bonded warehousing systems. Right now, yeah. there's, it's an only experimental project that launched. In a, in, a, in a city called Kazan, which is not which is also in a part of central Russia before the Urals, uh, on the Volga River. And um, so far, only Russian Post has the exclusive rights to pilot it for a certain number of uh, time, maybe like a year or, or, or a few months. But after that, this practice will become more and more common. And of course, you need to move the inventory, be it bonded or non-bonded, closer to where the people consume them. And why is this important? And when you look at the structure of how people are buying online, you see that a lot of volumes are coming from the regions, not only from Moscow and St. Petersburg. And a lot of this volume is basically being sourced from China because these Chinese volumes have uh, uh, attractive prices and attractive assortment to all the people that live uh, in, in those regions. And the logistics there, as Andre has just mentioned, is not very well developed yet. This is why this gap. Of trying to bridge bridge it in the regions and make logistics more affordable, faster, and quicker is, is a huge source of, of, of opportunity, definitely.
1: So, so you, I mean, you guys are at the forefront of it. You're seeing it every day in the work you do there, consulting to international organizations who are looking to develop you know, strong networks and supply chains inside Russia, but also connecting outside. I mean, how much interest do you solicit and do you see in the market from overseas companies? You know, wanting to come in and 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 you know, deciding like Alibaba, now's the time I I want to lay that infrastructure. I can, you know I can. There's a roadmap for me to be able to put a bonded warehouse. There's a roadmap for me to, for me to move part of my inventory out of China and put it closer to my European network. Are you seeing a lot of interest, and is that resulting in a lot of deal making, a lot of M and A's and joint ventures in that marketplace? Because we seem to read about it regularly.
2: <laughs> well, one uh, one of the aspects here is obviously a. Um uh, you know this conversation around sanctions so what i have been personally hearing is that there is a lot of interest like you like you're saying to move into russia but you know there's there's also caution in terms of okay well how does this actually work i mean what what is going to happen in the year so it's also a certain forecasting element uh, that that sits behind it and this is purely a, a, a economic and political conversation because otherwise market wise i mean the opportunity is there it's 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 absolutely available there are good market studies there are Everything is developing, but I think that this element is kind of holding back certain brands when they are trying to enter. So Russia. the risk mitigation elements, yeah. Like the yeah. So there's a, there's a risk mitigation. So, but 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 those brands that are um, uh, that are courageous enough to enter Russia, so to speak, they usually succeed. We we had a very interesting uh, example with uh, the international UK brand called Next. Which have been operating yep. on a drop shipping model with us. They were our one of our first clients back in SBSR. And then they have actually have decided to open up their own warehouse. And they actually have moved in. And that happened in the time when the sanctions have only started kicking in. So they have they have been entering the market in the most, you know, kind of dangerous time, so to speak. But nevertheless, I mean the the, the, the logistics market is the logistics market. It's not very heavily predicated on you know you know these uh, international cliches that sit it around could,
1: goods industry. have to move right people buy
2: people yeah, sell. absolutely and absolutely, absolutely. So, so that was a purely business decision. So they have just decided that it's more profitable for them to set up their own operation there and uh, Russia post is doing the same thing I mean the the development and logistics that they're doing is happening in partnerships with with international companies um, so and there's a bunch of other examples available out there as well
3: yeah as so we you- a rule of
2: Sorry, yeah
3: Yeah, sure as a rule of thumb if 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 a foreign retailer has enough volume to be successful in russia they would go and do that because apart from next we also have the case of iherb for Mm -hmm. which russia i think is in the top three countries and guess what from the drop shipping model that they employed at the very beginning they localized they opened a few warehouses they're piloting this particular bonded warehousing model uh everything just to consolidate and make it and make more gains on the russian market and uh, the same case was with alibaba yeah why did they enter for the first time uh, in their history why did aliexpress had a jv and entered a, uh, a separate country exactly because they saw the potential and because the volume was so huge so that now mm-hmm. up to 25 percent of the entire AliExpress, aliexpress russian volume is actually being generated by the local sellers and local manufacturers they saw the value they saw the huge traffic that was uh in, in Russia, and they came in and they localized. That's that's uh, how we see it happening before.
1: So so when you guys are engaging with international companies looking to enter Russia, what, what is the advice you give them, in the best way to enter those that marketplace? Is it is it to go down that partnership route, or is it to to build it in thou shalt come model? Or what's the advice that you give them as the easiest, low risk way to penetrate Russia?
3: Well, Andre, it really Andre. actually <laughs> depends on the.
2: It really actually. Yeah. Ah, sorry. No, Andre, you go ahead. Yeah. Okay. Um, I think it really actually depends on on the business itself uh, in terms of what they want to the do. Model. Mm. Yeah. On on the on the on the business model um, and uh, various examples like we have already discussed, they they have worked. So opening up your own warehouse, well, that, that 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 is a way to go if you have a lot of volume. If you don't have a lot of volume you can use some other routes uh, enabling you to enter Russia. But uh, there are more and more opportunities appearing because I even know that the um, Russian marketplaces at the moment, they have started introducing an opportunity for international brands to actually onboard these marketplaces. So I think the next, uh, now now the step is quite easy. So they're just enabling some brand from Belgium or from somewhere to onboard a marketplace. I think the next step behind it is actually building some, International logistics infrastructure within Europe or within other regions that will actually enable those brands shipping into Russia, and this is uh, another model that uh, also sits there as well. It's really
1: fascinating, now, Kim. I don't know if you were down at Gold Foods last week um, here in Dubai, but you know, we had the, the the big exhibition for for the food industry, Gold Foods, which is an annual annual event. It's a global event; that attracts thousands and thousands of attendees. But I, I have to admit, for the first time having sat there, and I've been there many, many times before, uh, every time I sat down for a cup of coffee or we're having a salad at one stage, and and just listening to the different accents around and and seeing where people are coming from as visitors, um, the proportion of of Russian speakers and Russians attending Gold Foods and, more importantly, representing Russian produce in Gold Foods and looking, looking to push out into the international market, particularly in the agriculture space, um, certainly blew me away. I mean there was you know, by far and uh, it's the highest proportion I've seen. Is that something that we're also starting to see that you know Russian industry and agriculture is now looking for channels outside of Russia to push themselves into those international export spaces?
3: yeah most definitely because russian agricultural industry has also made a lot of gains in the in the past years mm-hmm. um, growing more crops harvesting more crops exporting a lot more than than we used to however this also has direct connections to logistics because when we were speaking to some uh, we were speaking to some heads of a russian uh, agricultural expert union and basically they said russia does have harvesting fields so we can produce a lot of stuff that other people might need but we might not need might, might not have enough logistics capability to actually hold everything out from Russia. Because the main bottlenecks here are actually railroad connections that lead directly to the ports. They say there is not enough cars, uh, railroad cars to carry out enough produce to those ports. There might be issues with with available vessels, even though this is a problem to a lesser extent. So basically what they highlighted is more investments into railroad infrastructure is needed if we really intend to become... um, even bigger exporter of agricultural produce. So this is an, another opportunity for, for foreign companies to take a look at this particular segment and maybe you know, upgrade it.
1: Yeah, I, I was amazed actually with the number of pre-packaged value brands that, and you know maybe it's a bit of my naivety, but they'd taken the Russian brand, rebranded it into a Western format, yeah, some of it was incredibly good, and, and that's their export channel. And, and it's those organisations that seem we, we seem to be dominant, um, and they're you know actively looking for distribution partners, new markets, new channels. And I think that's certainly you know Kim, you've attended Gold Foods many times. Um, you know, I don't know what your your take is on it, but they there was a lot more of an aggressive push this year. Um, and a lot more activity around that space. I mean, Kim, did, I, didn't, I wasn't there last year, but how does, it, how does it compare to previous years?
0: Oh, I think, uh, I think there's, a, there's a real resurgence. I think uh, over the last few years, Russian investment in, in Dubai has probably been down slightly uh, for a range of reasons. Uh, but you know, when I first came into the Middle East uh, 20 years ago, um, Russia was extremely dominant force from an investment mm-hmm. perspective. Um, right across the board and, uh, and in, in fact, fair to say, I think uh not necessarily being an expert on these economic matters but uh, a big a big stanchion of the growth here has been from from russia and in the eastern bloc uh, down into down into the uae and the gc in general I, i've just got a quick flip i want to flip back to you andre further to your uh, discussion daryl um we've been talking about sales a sky sc- a size a scale Um, dimension of the market and we're talking about e-commerce and consumer patterns. For our audience, give us some big picture numbers about Russia. Uh, I mean, how big is the place? I mean, a lot, of, a lot of Americans will tell you they don't know much about much going on outside of America, let alone Russia or China. And I also then want to flip to, you know, the trade I know is going on between China and Russia. But tell us, uh, how big is Russia? How many people? What's the size of the place? Because you look at it on the map, it's bloody
2: enormous. <laughs> well, I can, I can tell you that. I mean, the, the population is around 140 million, which is, which is not very big the the area of russia is uh, i can't pronounce that number i am afraid you're, I
1: talking no. blokes, you're, you're talking to two blokes you're talking to two folks that come from a country of less than 5 million people mate i mean <laughs> <it's a number. laughs> and, uh,
0: <laughs> well, let's see let's see if we when we talk about australia we talk about roughly the same size as, as the us uh, how many times can we put the US or Australia into Russia? It's got to be four or five times, isn't
2: it? US should be about four times, I think. Alex, correct me if I'm wrong.
3: I think I think it. Yeah, I think I think it's smaller than that. Maybe only three times. But yeah, the place is pretty stretched, pretty enormous. Various geographic locations. Uh, you know, from uh, we get the temperature uh, Florida-like in our southernmost regions. In Sochi and then we get absolute uh, arctic circle temperatures up there in the north. So yeah, uh, the place is big the place is enormous and a lot of people actually live, as Andre said concentrated in the eastern um, in the eastern area uh, in, in the central area as we call it and then the, there's also certain um, population density levels in the Far East closer to the China border. And in the Siberia, this is where, where people live and, and make, make a living, harvesting uh, resources there. Uh, and yeah, the, I think the main trade partner of Russia, I'm not a think, I'm sure of it, of course, is the uh, is, is China. The trade uh, growth and the trade levels have been enormous. Yes, uh, we can pull out some data regarding the, the, the national trade, but I can only tell you that in e-commerce, China dwarfs everything. 90% of all cross-border e-commerce volumes come from China. In terms of money, it's only you know closer to fifty percent. Yeah, in terms of value, but in terms of sheer amount, it's absolutely enormous and dwarfs everything else. I think the second trading partner for Russia after China in the e-commerce sphere in cross-border is European Union. Twenty-two percent comes from EU, uh, the larger EU, of course, together with the UK before they departed. Yeah, and eleven percent comes um, from America. Uh, by by people from America and uh, the rest of it, you know, it just just rest the world. So even there, the clear priority is 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 China.
0: Great. Well, that, you know, it's really interesting insight for me and probably Daryl as well. I'm sure for the rest of our audience on that subject. Of course, Russia is just spectacularly large across a very wide geographic area. But not only that, culturally, language wise, different groups of people that look completely different from one side of Russia to the other. I mean so talk to us a little bit about russia cultural uh, side in terms of the different ethnic groups that exist within Russia. and how many languages are there? Well, I mean Australia, in Australia there's about one hundred ninety different Aboriginal languages by the way, as a plague for Australia. So tell us about the
2: Russian scenario. Well, well I think this also has a, a certain heritage element to it because when the Soviet Union existed and was much much larger than uh, the, uh, Russia today and uh, had a, had a bundle of all these you know nations and ethnic groups I mean the central idea was that uh, all 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 the nations that live in Russia they are equal and they are friends so I mean you could really find you know some very active um, some really active, uh, communists in that era coming back from very very different ethnical backgrounds, and uh, so it was very very diverse and it was very very equal. And I think uh, it pretty much remains the same today because it's not uh, it's, it's not surprising to see you know people from, from uh, Kazakhstan or from ethnic groups from the west of Russia to be working in uh, large companies. So it's it's quite quite diverse. I would actually say. I don't know if Alex maybe has got something to add to this one.
3: Yeah, I think I think uh, similar to Australia, we have around 190 different nationalities, different ethnicities that, that are still living in Russia, because uh, of course Russians are still the major... And and the biggest uh, population that that we have, but we are pretty much diverse, especially in 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 north, in the far east, in the in the uh, southern region with, with uh, Caucasus mountains. A lot of it uh, are are really different cultures, and and uh, I think that a lot of it has been assimilated in terms like both Andre and I. When we look at Georgian food, for example, we think it's normal Russian style to have the Georgian food on our table. We don't shy away even from. Uh, the, for example Central Asian uh, f- foods or or, or or the ones that are coming from uh, currently Baltic states because when we were all together I think a lot of the those cultural things that really got assimilated and became on this higher national level that people still uh, still are following today and what I'm sure they still are is just only recently only yesterday, I read a very interesting study uh, about the the openness of various countries towards different nationalities and how they how they can perform and work there and, and feel discriminated or not and Russia was always uh, in various questions in top three countries where people said it's the most accommodating to different nationalities it really doesn't matter if you want to be employed if you want to open up your own business nobody will look at, at uh, you know the way you look like or what you eat. Um, I, I was actually uh, not surprised, but it was a source of pride for me that Russia ranks so high in terms of equal opportunity for all nationalities, according to the to the recent study.
0: Awesome. Yeah, that's really interesting. And of course, we flip back to the logistics and supply chain space. Um, you've mentioned the, the, the enormous variety of weather. And in fact, I tagged you guys a couple of weeks ago. We had a quick Zoom and uh, you were very quick to show me out the window from both of you six feet of snow and you, and you couldn't see the Kremlin, which you can see, I think, in your place, Alex, uh, just because the amount of snow that was floating around. Uh, how, does, how does the weather, con- the extreme weather conditions being so close to the Arctic Circle uh, impact the massive railway infrastructure, for example? Does it close down, as we've seen recently in Europe with the huge disruptions going on there with their worst weather for 15 years? Um, how, how do you get by? Not just rail in air as well. I mean, surely that would
1: affect the air networks, and, uh, the, the, which is a pivotal line mechanism for
0: fresh projects, right? What happens, guys?
3: Uh, well, it's pretty much it's pretty much business as usual, guys, uh, because we we were prepared to live in such in such harsh and, di- and difficult environments. When there is six feet of snow or where there's very harsh and cold weather, I think when we talked, it was minus thirty at that at that particular time. Uh, told you
1: to say <laughs> that.
3: <laughs> yeah, true, but but Ten life, you know, <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but life was still going on. the the um, uh, The deliveries were still being made. The logistics industry was still working because our. Facilities Facilities are actually prepared. We build everything like insulated, with the access to hot water everywhere, uh, with the insulated pipes. Uh, but of course, sometimes when there is extreme blizzard, it affects it affects uh, air operations, uh, airport operations. But I think as everywhere in the world, and in terms of the craziest things that can actually happen is that uh, when we were working with Andre together at SPSR, and we were delivering to the very uh, um, northern, to the Arctic Circle, we employed helicopters that used uh some standard standard tours and rides between different cities and then we also received sometimes messages and highlights that the 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 vessels that utilize what do you call it uh basically uh, i've I, for, I forgot the english word for a specific no, vessel ice that ice hovers no that hovers above the ground the and, yeah. yeah the hovercraft exactly yeah so the hovercrafts weren't able to depart <laughs> because they get as we hover Yeah, exactly. So when, when you talk about deliveries being made in some, in some northern places, we employ helicopters and hovercrafts to to do that. Of course, they don't belong to the company. I think they are maintained by, by the, by the region and by the state, but this is the only way you do that. And then you're absolutely right. We're building a lot of, as a country, a lot of icebreakers exactly to, to make way for all those ships around, go around the north. And I think that also a lot of logistics providers are banking on this uh, way, becoming more and more Lucrative, more and more efficient in order to haul goods and haul containers from China to Europe, specifically utilizing both both the ice breaking fleet and also the the uh, you know the climate change that also happens in the north. So yeah, this is one of the craziest uh, cases that we we had.
1: Uh, you know, we're talking about Russia, but I feel like given what's happened in the US a few weeks ago, we could easily be talking about Texas, right? Because we're talking about supply disruption. Um, but Alex, what you're describing is actually every year we have an infrastructure that needs to be adaptable and nimble enough to keep that supply chain moving and keep that activity uh cranking through right but uh, you know i think it's interesting that you know it goes back to the old fred smith story from fedex right when he you, you know hired the helicopter to bring the mail through right
3: yeah uh, yeah so i think we're more prepared because we've we'll, we have been living in those conditions for for a lot of years yeah uh, but but uh, I also believe that sometimes disruptions do happen because of extreme weather. You just have to take it as the, as the you know uh, force majeure.
0: Well, guys, that, that, uh, these, these insights, I personally am finding extremely interesting, and um, I hope our audiences as well. And I can see us coming back and revisiting a number of these issues down track, so this won't be the only time we'll be talking to you. Look, uh, we can just look to the issue of uh, moving forward now. I mean, the world has had a lot of disruption over the last 12 months. A lot of organisations have benefited, and many not so much. And of course, we we respect the fact that many organisations and people have done it very, very tough over the last 12 months. If we look forward, then 21 onwards, in the, in the near term to medium term, what do you think the big picture opportunities and issues are for supply chain in the Russian context, Uh, what are the one or two things that you think really organizations, whether they be internal uh, legacy organizations inside of the Russian environment economically, um, or or companies, as you guys, all three of you discussed earlier about uh, other companies coming in, what do you think the big opportunities are going to be moving forward over the next year or two?
2: Well, I think that the uh, the outsourcing of the logistics function will accelerate in the upcoming years. So this, so this, is, this, this is one of the things, yeah? And, um, the, uh, and we also see that there's much room for improving really basic service levels of the existing 3PL operators. 3PL and fulfillment operators, these things will be really uh, improving. And actually for building last mile capacities, uh, I've also listened to various conferences on this, and all the market players there is saying that investments into the last mile are crucial in Russia at the moment. So anything that is associated with lockers, with uh, pick up and drop off solutions, with courier networks and various services that these couriers provide, there's not enough saturation in the market at the moment. This will continue in the upcoming years.
3: Okay, thanks. Alex? Well, I can uh, only add to that uh, two things. Investments in infrastructure are also crucial, as we discussed uh, today with you guys. Uh, um, A lot of things need to be upgraded in terms of uh, airline um, capacity, in terms of railroad capacity and other infrastructural things. And another thing is, of course, we see that the cross-border e-commerce is going to rejuvenate. The state it was in because of COVID in 2020, it's not the way it's been historically. It has always been um, around thirty percent of Russian market and growing, so I think there is going to be a lot of uh, recovery growth in the coming months and years. So this is also a good opportunity for the companies to hop on that on that trail. Awesome,
0: Darren,
1: yeah, you got I, I, yeah no. I I agree with the guys. I think you know that infrastructure point that
3: that Alex raises is
1: just such a great opportunity for organizations looking to get into Russia at this point. I think you know there was a standout, and guys, correct me if I'm wrong, but um, now, I read an article late last year on you know, X5, which is one of your your big retailers, not the BMW, the X5 the retail group, and you know those guys have done so well rolling out their their multi-sized footprints around the, the CIS in Russia. I mean, three and a half thousand new stores rolled out, you know, last year. Um, a year before that was four thousand, you know, fourteen thousand, you know, footprints now, and. Yeah, that sort of r- strong retail growth and maturity lends itself to omni-channel, to e-commerce, direct fulfilment opportunities, you know, direct to customer. Um, so I think that's going to be a continuing theme, as it is in many parts of the world. Um, and the other number that stood out for me you know, off the back of the Gold Foods experience I shared, driven by agriculture, is you know r- Russian European trade is up twenty four point nine percent in the last twelve months. Now, that's a phenomenal amount of growth. And I think you're going to see increasingly more Russian organizations take what they do domestically and look to export that and to enter more international markets, either through partnerships or distributors or even direct themselves. So I think, that for me, they're the two big trends.
0: Awesome. So what we tend to do, guys, on on the show is, is have a bit of a wrap and uh, ask some some questions of most of our guests, in particular with, with you gentlemen. I'm really interested to know around in regards to doing business in, in your environment. What would be one or two tips or uh, advisory notes? I mean, you're both very experienced international consultants, you both run consultancies uh, in Russia, and Andre, you have a bit of a following. So I, I see the, the near term future myself. As uh, as yourself and potentially Alex as being the go-to uh, guys in Russia, bringing Russian supply chain to the world. Quite frankly, I, I, had I that
1: think was referring to as Alex Alex's uh, sorry Andre's uh, Instagram uh, yeah. commentary, right? Which is just, just going gangbusters in the community.
0: Yeah, I'm following it. So, so. Yeah, it's a great
1: guy. <laughs> if anyone hasn't hasn't connected to him yet on Instagram, they should
0: yeah so and and people will see uh, down below any, any contact details you you want us to give in terms of Instagram for followers. But if we talk just quickly then about one or two advisory points from yourselves uh, for, for people coming into that market uh, or or leaders leading businesses that are engaging um, from the outside in and to, to the to the Russian context. What would be one or two things to have top of mind for for leaders leading businesses?
3: Well, I believe that um, it's, it's it's actually similar to the Middle East. Yeah, uh, the local partner is very much important because Russia has its own specifics. Um, it doesn't operate really the, in the same way as, as um, another world operates, as, as we also touched upon in the beginning of our conversation. So finding a good local partner, if of course you're absolutely unfamiliar with Russia, is actually key. They will be able to hold your hand and walk you through all the various uh, issues and points. Like for example, our personal data law protection is so much different from even the European one that you need to have a local partner to advise you on that and help you navigate those issues. Uh, uh, those streams, yeah, in, in this particular river. So, for me, that's number one advice. And the second one, I'm I'm of a bit of a control freak. This is why I would advise for people that enter Russian market, please do not be afraid to localize and build like local representative offices and go into market. Because together in conjunction with this particular partner, the more control points you have and the more representation you have in the market, it's only for the better. You'll have a way better connection with the people and with the, I don't know, partners, distributors, suppliers, whatever whatever have you.
0: Awesome. Now the, the final wrap from me before I just throw to Daryl for any final points was uh really you, you're both extraordinarily well, maybe for Russian standards, not extraordinarily educated, but for the level of uh, formal education and qualifications that you both have, um, to me, is, is exemplary. So if you're talking about the younger generations, the millennials, Generation Z coming through now, um, what are, what are the kids learning and what are the things that they're focusing on as they're coming into modern Russian society and being part of the broader international context? So the question is, what what are kids in, in the education well, system in, in Russia learning?
2: They are much better English speakers.
0: Yeah. Okay. Good. And and what sort of subject matter? What are what are the sort of skills that they're they're wanting to learn?
2: Well, the the education in Russia is uh, modernizing and evolutionizing substantially uh, now now today. So they're. There, there are a lot of activities that the kids can uh, do nowadays, and uh, which is very, very popular in Russia. So apart from basic schooling and uh, from the basic subjects they have in school, they attend a lot of various other activities outside that is sports-related, uh, that is arts-related a lot. yeah. I see that there's a lot of interest within the young people with um, uh, a lot of fascination with various IT uh, things and services and opportunities out there. Awesome. And Alex, um, I, I think it's, it's quite beneficial for their future and just to get themselves ready for, you know, these evolving jobs for the future. Okay.
0: Alex, any thoughts about what kids are learning and what they're interested in? Are they, are they interested in the same thing as, as Chinese or European or US kids or they, they've got different focus?
3: Uh, I would, uh, uh, maybe I'm wrong, but I would say that a lot of uh, you know young population their interests are converging to the very same point they are more or less uh you know um looking at the same influencers and followers across instagram the world is more and more global now yeah so uh, their thoughts and interests are maybe maybe just uh, uh, as i said converging and yeah a lot of fascination inside russia with it tech various those things developments this is something we've been good at and we continue to be good at in the in the international sphere and people really are longing and embracing the young generation of of leading this charge there yeah leading the charge of of harnessing the power of youtube facebook uh, I don't know TikTok, Instagram. Yep. Not only not only for their own like benefit and promotion, but also to to exercise a lot of sales through those uh, you know you know methods too as as sales channels. They're making, and some of them are making a lot of money just by being life bloggers. So, but I think exactly as you said, him. I believe uh, that that a lot of interests of the of the young generation in America, Europe, or China, Russia, or they are or Middle East in that regard are basically converging.
0: So we're seeing the new, uh, the implementation of the new echelon of oligarchs in Russia, of the the young generation coming through. I think to, to Alex's point, Kim. I mean, yeah, the digital has just smashed those boundaries and borders,
1: right? And and yeah, you know, Alex, you make a very good point when you say you know they're looking at the same influences, they're looking at the same marketplaces, they're following the same behaviours as their uh, their colleagues in, in different parts of the world. And I think. You know, that, that really has been a big shift from perhaps say, our generation to, to the next generation. You that digital has just taken that away completely.
0: Well, guys, uh, it's been a fascinating conversation as Daryl mentioned earlier. It's really intriguing and, and understanding more about one of the largest countries in the world. Given there's only 100 million of you, that means everybody's got a farm, obviously, over there. And a big cool. Cool. 140 <laughs> yeah, people much, walk around yeah. with you know, big forks and coats, right? Yeah. yeah, but we really do appreciate you taking the time. Uh, thanks for your uh transparency on a lot of the things that um, people were very, very keen, I'm sure, to, to understand. I hope our audience has is, is, uh, gained as much information as we have. We really look forward to staying in touch with you and, and talking to you again. Um, so Andre Lukin, Alex Borisov, uh, Carol, thank you from Dubai as well, and from From Russia with love, we we wish everybody a good day. Um, Thanks again for all the first responders and all the people in the health systems around the world. Of course, we're in this massive move to vaccinations now. I think that's probably another subject that we can talk to you about next time, see how things are going because uh, Russia is leading the way with its own production of vaccines as well. Um, Thank you to everybody who's keeping us safe. Please, everybody out there, keep your hands clean, keep your masks on, stay distance, and stay safe. Thanks, gentlemen. Thanks, everybody. Thanks so much, guys.
1: Thank you, it's been a pleasure.
0: Bye, yeah. see you, guys. Bye.